Welcome back to Where Others Won't. I just want to say a quick thank you for all the messages and shares of the last couple of episodes that I've put out. We've had Joan Ryan, Doug Lamov and Todd Bean and Cameron Schwab. And I've been inundated with messages about how rich those episodes are. So thank you very much for that. And we're going to keep it going with episode 80. And my guest on this episode is Aaron Walsh, who is the mental skills coach for the Chiefs in Super Rugby. Aaron's a longtime mental skills coach and has also worked across soccer, cricket, rugby league, field hockey, and Major League Baseball. He's also passionate about making his discipline better. So he shares his frameworks and ideas on social media, and he hosts courses for practitioners that want to learn more about the mental side of performance. I sat in on one of those courses during the summer, and it was absolutely fantastic. If you get an opportunity, I would thoroughly recommend joining him for those sessions. For now, enjoy this conversation with Aaron Walsh. Walshy, proof that an Aussie and a Kiwi can be mates. Ah, yes. Our rugby well, teams are struggling with that at the moment, but we'll, we'll, we'll do our international we'll, diplomacy on their behalf. We'll work through this. We're, we're, we, we just have to get through about 45 minutes, mate, of just, yeah. I know it's going to be tough. Yeah. For the, for the sake of all of your wide range listeners and the benefit that they may or may not get from this conversation, I'm happy to, to sacrifice. <laughs> Mate, um, really looking forward to having a chat. I think we can go really deep here and, and particularly, you know, with everything going on at the moment, uh, head coaching, uh, psychology, mental skills, uh, there's a lot swirling around that we can cover. Um, but I'd rather go deep than go wide. But Let's start here. Um, I'd love for you to tell us about the, the survey that you did recently uh, around organizations and their utilization of mental practitioners or mental skills. Cause I, I think it's quite confronting actually, you know, it's, it's easy for people in our industry to say we're doing something about it, but it wasn't exactly your finding, was it? No, I mean, part of it was a, a motivation of, um, I suppose, you know, someone like, I just saw it recently again, you know, Michael Gervais um, talking to a head coach, asking the head coach, hey, what what percentage of the performance do you think is mental? And, you know, this is always the, a great conversation and the coach comes back and says, oh, it's about 80%. And his question back to him, do you train your team 80% of the time in this area? And his his um, sort of main point is that mental skills needs to be baked into the environment rather than an optional part of the environment. And so, you know, there's been lots of thoughts around that. And, and I suppose in, in my experience, what really sort of got me into the, um, into the conversation was I sort of had the same experience. Number one, I think a really good important uh, distinction to make is I don't think the mental side is 80% of anyone's performance. Uh, and especially when you're playing quite a physical game. So 
I've sort of put it around, you know, 60% of you had a pyramid, 60% would be your physical and technical capability that contributes to your performance. 20 might be your tactical, like, like how are we going to play the game with the skill set that we have? And then the other 20 might be the mental, which is once we've got the physical and technical capability, once we have the tactics nice and clear, are we able to translate our capability into performance? Okay, so that's where the mental side comes in. So, you know, I think we have to redefine how we think about the mental side. It's, you know, and, and lots of people have tried to go, it's 90%. It's not 90% mental. You can't outthink a bad body, poor technique, and horrible tactics. All you can do by thinking well is maximize those. But the thinking well isn't a silver bullet that increases a person's capability or a silver bullet that covers for unprepared people. That's not what the mental side is. And so the survey that I undertook, and it's actually probably going to be the foundation of a bit of academic work I'm going to do in the next couple of years, is that I was really intrigued around the subject of, of the normalization and probably the bigger question, the integration of mental skills. So like in order to integrate, you have to normalize it. That's why I suppose I started off with those thoughts, right? You just can't try to integrate something into a team that everyone is skeptical of. Like that just doesn't work. So the, the, the normalization was sort of around the idea of is, do we treat this like a special skill or do we treat this like a foundational skill? And if we were to treat it like a foundational skill of performance, does it get treated and is it reflected in the way that would treat other areas of skill? So on my skill acquisition background, I know that the three main things that you use in skill acquisition is you give people the right information, so the education, you give them the right practices and tools or programs and drills, and you monitor and support them as they grow. And you know, if you think about that in an S&C program and a coaching skill program, all of that's always present, always present. This is why you're doing this exercise. This is how you do it. This is the benefits that you should get in your performance and we'll support you as you go about that doesn't happen in the mental side because we don't see it as a skill we see it as a additional luxury item for people who are not playing well so that conversation has been happening for a long time and so i just wanted to get a bit of meat on the bone so i went to a ton of coaches that i knew and they were mostly all in professional environments and i asked them a couple of real simple questions so this and you know, and what I was trying to identify, is there actual a gap between perceived value and actual value? That's what I was looking for. So the perceived value question was, do you think the mental side of performance is important? <laughs> so if you're a head coach or, well, of course, that's 100%. Okay. Yeah. So that's it. That was an easy one. Okay. Um, okay. How much do you have in, do you have expertise in your environment? Was the second part of that question. And how much time do you dedicate to developing this? And so the answers sort of came back were, and the first one I sort of expected was that the expertise was around anywhere between 15 and 20%. It was, yeah, 15 to 20% teams have someone. So I think that's a huge growth, but that means nothing. It means nothing. So, so what I mean by that is there's a lot of box ticking going on in the mental space of, yeah, we, we found someone. Okay, cool. Now, the real test is how much time are they in your environment and how much time are you giving your team to prepare in this part of your, of your uh, performance foundations? It's about one to three hours a week. 
So that was the, mm-hmm. that's, that's, so where we, we go from perceived to actualized. So perceived value, perceived was we all love this and we think it's important. Okay, why aren't you translating that into action? So there's a couple of questions there. Either we don't know how or we don't value it as much as we are communicating. So what I'm really interested in is exploring the how. So we don't know how. We don't know what model. We don't know what structure. We don't know what strategy. We don't know. We just don't know. And that became the overriding message. So the second part of the research, and um, we can get into this as we go on, was when it's worked well, what happened? When it hasn't worked well, what happened? So that's sort of where we're at with a lot of the, the conversations at the moment. Yeah. Me looking at that as a coach, I mean, it's not surprising. And then I guess my second thought is <laughs> the irony is there's psychological work going on in all of those environments. It's just not the right stuff, right? <laughs> it's, you're actually damaging uh, and, and particularly, you know, we see this on social media all the time and potentially it's a benefit of social media actually is these recycled ideas and old school methodologies that still come from like wartime era NFL, you know, like we're going to beat down on opponents and, you know, like all these kind of things are still really, really prevalent despite all of the progress that we've made. And don't get me wrong, there's, there's a time and a place for that in competitive sport, uh, particularly in mm. physical competitive sport. But the prevalence of it is actually quite shocking. And so that's what mm. I mean. It doesn't surprise me that the findings yeah. from your survey were yeah. the way that they were. Yeah, and what I'm hoping to do, mate, is I'm actually trying to incorporate a, a master's thesis and I'm, I want to dive in for a couple of years because I think I'm just scratching yeah. the surfaces. Like, totally. I really think I'm just scratching the surfaces. And my goal in that is just to provide, you know, some resource to mainly coaches, to be honest, and organizations who are saying, man, we think it's important, but we don't know how to move forward. Um, so, you know, I've been quite deliberate in the engagement of teams that I work with that. I go through a pretty stringent process all around how do we normalize and integrate it. That's the question I'm thinking in the back of my mind all the time. So all of that's all of our uh, activities got to be informed by that. Like, are we normalizing? So are we making it for everyone? And are we integrating it? Is it a normal part of our life? Mm-hmm. And so in professional context, as you know, I've been really time poor. It's a great test for head coaches because if you're giving time to develop this part of performance that you've told me is really important, you are sacrificing another part of performance. And that's often the jigsaw puzzle of high performance is what, what do we do with our time to be most efficient for performance to occur? And um, I think that's a, probably a pretty big quandary for head coaches because you might have an assistant coach who's a little bit insecure and what they need but what they think they need is more time in front of the team. Their area is really important and they feel neglected. So meaning there's a whole lot of these demands around coaches, particularly head coaches around what area of performance should we emphasize? What area of performance do we, mm-hmm. do we prioritize? And I think a lot of head coaches in the back of their mind saying, we know it's important, but we don't know what to do. Could we get some help? And that's sort of where my whole focus has been, apart from working with athletes, which is my day job, my my, you know, my hobby is around this, around these subjects. 
it's not really a hobby, but it feels like it. it's fun. <laughs> uh, I'm going to piss all the mental skills people off immediately here, but tell me what you think of this. I've positioned in a couple of presentations to head coaches that I believe the head coach of the future actually owns the mental practice. Um, it is to your point, such a benefit to have it integrated and the best person to actually integrate that isn't a third party practitioner. It's the person that is the most influential in, in the environment. And so I, that is so far off in the distance, but I, I firmly believe that that is actually the, the optimum and, and you can have those, you can have the Walshie beside you to advise on, on all of the, you know, the, the key kind of tactical things and, and the duty of care. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example, mate, in our environment, like with the chiefs is that our head coach would deliver the mm. mindset messages, but right. we would shape them. And, and I think it's a, a great, I think what you're on to is very, very right. My only, my only question and thoughts around it are a couple of things is, we're going to have to upskill our head coaches because it is an area where you do require some level of expertise. Not not uh, not a psych degree or have done a doctorate or clinical, but like if you understand the the mindset or the mental demands of performance and you're able to articulate, that's a huge advantage for a head coach. Um, and then it's also wondering how that that fits looking forward. So you know, my question back to you is that. A lot of our head coaches understand the physical side of performance and will drive messaging around that, but they still have an SNC department to deliver that. And I'm wondering, you know, with mental stuff, is that going to be, can we have a dual model like that? Is that what it's going, you know, you know, like where we have a head coach driving that key message, but we still have people around who are helping deliver that message day to day and deliver the practices day to day, deliver you know, with the one-on-one work with the athletes in that space. So I, I think you're right. I think there can be a really nice combination there, but it goes back to, you know, I feel very fortunate, um, particularly with the Chiefs, that I have a head coach who is acknowledges, owns, and wants to enhance this part of performance, which is, I know that's not the case for a lot of practitioners yeah, in my position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got to the point, mate, where I will not work for a team unless that's in place. I just don't care, no matter how much they're offering. Like, if you're not aligned and you're not willing to normalize or integrate this, then what am I here for? And part of that process of transitioning into, yeah, this kind of, I guess, keeper of the uh, of the the psychology of the team and the organization, I think the great part is that the coach should be doing the same things anyway. This is where it differs from the physical for me is I don't need to have the perfect technique of a back squat or, or know really too much about the physiology or have to practice it quite frankly. Whereas this stuff we should be doing. (laughs) And yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I totally agree. And that's where I'm probably seeing the, the connection. Well, I initially thought, Working with teams, most of my work would be with the athletes because that's predominantly how it's worked. But I would say that shift is now taking place where I'm mostly working with, I think, performance directors, head coaches, because we're wanting them to deliver it. But, geez, mm-hmm. they need a lot of coaching. And and what you're saying is, so, right, I don't know if you've done, you know, I know your book touched on it quite a lot, but 
I think I'd love to see a real large amount of research on our well-being stats of our coaches and our players. Um, and do our coaches have their own well-being strategies? And um, it's almost like, you know, I was sitting in a meeting a few days ago where it was almost okay that our coaches were working all these massive hours and were really tired. It was almost still noble. But yet, for performance, we'd never say that same demands on the players. So, yeah, it's just a little bit backwards, eh? I can tell you the answer to the question, mate. It's no, there are no strategies. And yeah. it's worse than that. Yeah. It's that the coaches that I coach, for the most part, are paying me out of their own pocket. So to, to get a yeah. strategy in place, they're having to take what little they make anyway and pay for someone yeah. from the outside to come into the environment just to help with, quite frankly, you know, basic structures around them for support infrastructure. So now, now this is going to change and it's going to change rapidly um, because, again, you can. I, I talk about this a lot. Guardiola has one. Jones has one. You start to rattle off the right names that already have this role in place. People start to take notice. So that that's a positive. But well, I mean, Gilbert, Gilbert, Gilbert Anoka has been with you know from Graham Henry to Steve Hansen now to Ian Foster as a key key man in that environment with the All Blacks as a council yeah. coach, all of it. You know, so I think you did right to have somebody. Let's talk about players for a little bit. So what are some of the misconceptions that you see still around, you know, what mental skills provide to the players? And I'll, I'll, I'll preempt this a, a little bit for you. The one that I notice the most is this idea that mental skills or practicing mental skills make everything go away. The pressure goes away. The nerves go away. Worthy opposition goes away. But it's not really like that. It kind of changes how you interact with them and smooths those rigid ups and downs. But this common narrative seems to be that it makes everything just disappear, which I, I don't believe to be true from my athletic career. <laughs> no, certainly not true. I think, I think what you're touching is I think probably the biggest misconception or the biggest part that I have to work with the athletes on is creating their their buy-in and i think you know their perception so i think a lot a lot of it is um hey you just need to think well that's a really terrible thing to say to an athlete like it like but if you say something like have you ever felt you're unable to deliver on your potential have you ever felt like there's times you've walked away from seasons with a massive amount of regret because you didn't quite get to where you wanted to you know, and is there an ability or is there a sense that, you know, you're training really, really well and your preparation is really well? And this this is really interesting. Out of the Rio Olympics in 2016, New Zealand Olympic Committee did a post-Olympic survey and 83% of our athletes were really proud of their preparation, while 42% were proud of their performance. So this gives us a really good insight where the mental side fits for athletes. So if we can say, because preparing to perform is a process, performing is an event, they're not the same thing. And so if you approach it only process-orientated, meaning I just do these activities and I don't adapt, I don't adjust, I don't have flexibility in the moment to recognize what, what's happening to me and what's happening around me, 
And when you're in preparation, your focus is not really on those things. Very process orientated. Where an event, though, has processes in it. That there's unpredictability, right? Like in massive amounts of unpredictability. So, so we do know that the mental, the mental skills that are needed throughout someone's week to prepare to perform are very different from the mental skills that they require in performance. And so, like we know in any other discipline of performance, what we're all, what I'm always trying to do is integrate tools that they will use on a Saturday into their training on a Tuesday and a Thursday. And if that happens, this is only happens in a skill model, right? Then that's when the magic begins to appear, I think. And having sat in on some of your training sessions um, in the, the little uh, modules that you put on through this through earlier in the summer, some things really stood out from me about you and the way that you approach your work in that there's a real understanding that part of this is, is really changing the dynamic in terms of how we interpret all of the different performance impediments that we come up against. So failure and pressure and discomfort and all these different things. And you, you said something and I wrote it down and I highlighted it. We embrace failure walk towards pressure and seek discomfort knowing it is necessary to grow. And so that's quite different from what a lot of practitioners are are talking about in that there's actually an approach towards all of those negative things rather than trying to go around them or divert them or go over them. You're, you're You're more so saying let's change how we perceive all of those things and then actually walk towards them as, as part of what we do. Yeah, and, and, and what you're saying is, is critical because we think that we know through life is that pressure, so this is a great example, right? So pressure we're told, I don't know if we're told, I think we're just conditioned to feel this way about pressure, is that it's something that needs to be removed, whereas I think pressure is something that needs to be embraced. Mm. Um, so we don't want to remove pressure um, unless it's really overwhelming. So I'm just talking about really narrow here in high performance. I'm not talking about financial pressure. I'm not talking about people who can't afford. I'm not talking about that. That's an overwhelming pressure that is a whole nother conversation. But what I'm talking about is understanding that discomfort is the evidence of courage and the fuel of growth, right? So, And that's always the fine line, like how much discomfort are you providing? You know, and I think we all know in our lives, like when I get comfortable, I don't grow. So I know I have to grow through discomfort. So how do I get discomfort? Well, I'm going to try things that I can probably fail at. And and that becomes important. So, okay, well, what is the point of failure? And reframing that sort of conversation. But I think that the, 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 the picture that you're alluding to is like, when I think of high performance, I think of high performance is capability minus interference, right? So all we're dealing is with is in that interference space. So what's interfering in your ability to actualize or to realize your capability? And if someone says pressure, then the last thing I want to do is say, well, you can't grow until that's removed. I want to say you can't grow until you walk towards it, right? You can't grow because if you remove it, then you're never putting yourself in situations where 
uh, performances demanded of you when you're feeling uncomfortable. And, and you know, high performance and pressure are synonymous. So I don't know why we get this idea that if we can remove pressure from people's framework, well, what are they going to do on Saturday when it turns up? <laughs> you know, because it's going to turn up. And so I think the genesis of it in some regards, I remember being with my son and I'm, I have to behave myself. My son's really, really, really good young cricketer. And, um, you know, he was encouraging one of the kids that was coming into bat at one of his team events like, um, hey, mate, you got an opportunity to win this for us. And a parent running in and saying, no, don't say that, don't say that, don't put any pressure on him. And I kept my mouth really shut, which is difficult for me at times, to be honest. I just went for a wander. And I said, this is the problem. In my mind, I'm thinking, this is the issue. We're trying to insulate people from pressure rather than teach them how to deal with pressure. Right? This is the, So if you keep insulating people from pressure, if you keep insulating people from difficult things and failure, if you keep on insulating people from adversity, how do you grow? Like you, can't, you just remain stagnant, right? And so I think for me, I would much rather have an approach where I don't ever want an athlete to come into a, to walk out of a conversation that I've had with them thinking, oh, this pressure thing I don't have to deal with. I can just departmentalize my performance so it's non-pressurized. But if you do that, the danger is you lose competitiveness in that conversation, right? So what's the, what's the, the point of competition? The point of competition is to put your best foot forward and do everything you can to get victory, right? It doesn't always happen, but that's why we compete. We compete. Like, and I love all the process stuff. I love all the wooden stuff. We compete to win, right? That's why we compete. We've been doing it for years. So the process, uh, the process part of it, these are the key actions that enable us to win. So we're not separating process and outcome. But if you take pressure out of a situation and you degrade the situation or, you know, I learned this working with baseball as we went to World Series. They're like, it's not just another game. You know, like, you know, you have that <laughs> coach probably before saying, oh, the, it's 90 feet. It's the same dynamic. It's 385 to left. It's 420 to center. It's 375. It's the same. Nothing's changed. No, everything's changed because the consequences of not performing in that situation are way higher than someone's ever experienced during the regular season. So to say to them, just treat it like another game is lunacy. It doesn't, it's not going to feel that way for the athlete. So I would much rather say, this is going to feel like nothing you've ever experienced before, but here's what we want to do on this step. I want you to visualize and pre preview how you want to feel and behave in that moment. Like preview it, preview it. Know that you're going to feel really nervous. You're, you're going to get into the box and your feet are going to be jittery. Your hand's going to be shaking when you go back into your stance. You're going to have a million thoughts running through your mind. What are you going to do? We help you navigate through that. Rather than pretending somehow that pressure won't have an impact because we've decided that it's not that important. So I don't know if that answers it, but yeah. Yeah, that's my thoughts around that is conversations. And this is where, again, coaching... <laughs> actually starts to become an impediment because you can't have fearful coaches. You can't have scared coaches that create athletes that aren't fearful and scared in those, in those, those key moments or just in those, those key games. And so here's the thing is right. Like we always push so much onto the athletes, but this is why I've, kind of become a champion of like, we need to live this too in coaching. 100%. You, 
will not have anyone take risks or be able to walk towards pressure if you're not there as the coach pushing them along saying i'll back you and work and even more than that 100%. in the press conference afterwards i've got your back then too and on monday when we get back in i'm going to give you the biggest hug and on tuesday at training again we're going to risk it again and we're going to keep going and unless the coach is like that we're we're shortchanging coaching and we're shortchanging our players as far as i'm concerned you're dead right. It's like it's almost what we talked about before we sort of started the conversation. Is if you want to eliminate creativity and um, adaption and risk and all of those things that we know are critical for performance, then you've just got to do three things. Number one, have a high consequence for failure. Okay. Have rules that determine how people should perform and not perform. And then you'll have the control you want. And I think that's the issue for a lot of head coaches. They just want control. And we were laughing about it before, but we see that Ted Lasso, right? Like, and, and we all love Ted and Ted's like the most brilliant and beautiful. Like we wish we were all like Ted. And yet when a outside sports psychologist comes into his environment, his initial reaction is to say, no, I've got this covered. Right. I've got this covered. And there's this threat that begins to, you know, arise within this coach. You saw with Lasso, for example, it was, I have the ability to create meaningful relationships with my men. They trust me and they will be open with me. Why do I need someone else to have those conversations? And there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a, bit of a uh, I suppose, deception's the wrong word, but there's a bit of a misinterpretation that players are fully open all the time to the head coach. It's right. just <laughs> not that real. Right. Head coach is making too many decisions for you to be a hundred percent transparent. Yeah. And there's power dynamics at play that you need to recognize as part of that. And, you know, it's another thing that I talk about a lot in, in presentations in particular to head coaches is we, we need to acknowledge that. And it's not just our role. It's, if, if you've ever been in an office environment, when the CEO walks onto the floor, everyone sits up straighter, they do their top button up, they, they enunciate their words differently. They act differently by the sheer presence of a power dynamic in the room. We need to acknowledge that the head coach is exactly the same because when you walk in the gym, the players lift their weights harder. And, and I know this because I've been on both sides. I've been the player and I've been, I've been the coach and it's, that is there. And like pressure, that's not going away. Well, the head coach holds, yeah, no, the, the head coach holds the one key that opens the door, which is called selection. Like that is the key that the head coach. And so anything that influences selection is important to players, isn't it? So if the head coach observes me doing A, B, and C, that might enhance my selection chances, or I know this would, you know, uh, perhaps compromise my selection chances. So, you know, there's a lot in it. But even going back to what you are saying before, mate, I think we have to, you know, and this is what I, I think for organizations and coaches, for example, really, really need to start considering this. This is, a, I think, could be a good part of our conversation is that in every other part of performance, you'd have a model, right? You would have a strategy and then you'd have a program. So if I would ask, if we did a live survey right now with everyone listening, how many teams and coaches in the mental space have a model that they have designed for their context, have a strategy 
that's not dependent on a person but it's held within the club, right? And then have a program that is able to deliver exactly what their strategy is demanding. I don't know. There's not many, eh? Not many because I can tell you if you look at that same dynamic from just a culture perspective, it's the, the club certainly doesn't hold the culture. The, they're asking the coach to bring the culture with them and tell them what to do with the culture. And that is treated infinitely more importantly than, than what you're talking about currently. Yeah, I'll give you an example. I'm working with a team in the States and they've had an amazing provider for six years, right? And so, you know, excellent person. Uh, they left last year recruited by a more high-profile team, happens all the time, right? Um, much more money. When they left, the program left. So, like, I, you know, like if I was starting up a team or I was a head coach looking to grow this, you've got to get it right. So I'd say, what model do we want? So this is probably getting into the weeds a bit. So the options are a model like everything from no program. Yeah, then you might have a minimalist program. So you have a provider come in pre-season, two sessions, once in the middle and two at the end. You'd have a deficit model, which is someone's hanging around, available, not intentional, but available for people that are struggling. You have a skill model. Now we're starting to get some traction where it's seen as a vital part of performance and treated like one. And all the principles of growing people in the physical and technical area are, are, you know, are applied to the mental area. So that would be a skill model. Then the final would be an integrated model, which I think we've talked a lot about today, which is someone in the environment, they coach performance, they coach the coaches, they help coach culture, they can coach leadership. So they're sort of covering off. So I would guarantee you that most teams you talk to don't even know that there's a model. Like here's the options. Like, and it's not integration's not the goal. That's just a good model for a team that's able to do that. So for other teams, it might be we've had this deficit model we hate. We've got to move it to a skill model. Okay. So once we've done the model, then we have the strategy. The strategy is what content's going to be really, really important. And how do we deliver that in the most effective way to our team? Then after that, which I think this is where the teams make mistakes, go find the person. Go find the person who can deliver your strategy and can embrace the model that you have in place. Now, we've got it backwards, like you're saying. Go find the person and what's the model? Well, we don't have one. What's our strategy? We don't have one. What shall I do? Whatever you think. And we would never do that with any other part of performance, would we? And yet we do it all the time in the mental space. And so a lot of teams have now got the person for 10 hours a week who might be a registered clinical psychologist. But my question is, are they having impact in your environment? And how would you know that? And if it's not integrated, then they're not. They are filling a seat. That probably needs to be filled, but nevertheless, the impact level won't be very high. You know, so I think teams and coaches have got to start thinking about the mental side in that way. How much in your work and experience has that work or that model being contextualized to that particular environment rather than a copycat? It has to be contextualized. It doesn't work. Yeah. So that's why I could present those five options. Like I'm just working with a club right now in the UK and I'm discouraging them from the integrated model. It's too big of a step, right? So their team hasn't had, they've been in no program. So we're going to try and sort of go into sort of a, probably go down to a deficit skill program a little bit, a combo of a little bit both. Because the front door may be through 
to get trust with the group, maybe much more through a well-being conversation rather than a performance conversation. So this person is in the environment because we really care about your well-being and we think it's really good for you to have someone to talk to. Now, for me, that model, I don't really like at all. So for if I'm a head coach or if I'm running a team, uh, my preference, and everyone can argue with this, is that the mental skills person facilitates the well-being counselling work that needs to be done but doesn't deliver it and that's just from my preference around the model so example that we're just getting someone into that space where they might be going if you're not playing well there's someone available but we don't want to lay from the beginning that's why they're here so my point being is you don't just jump into number five and go we're going to do a fully integrated model we've had nothing in the past um our players are cynical and so what are, what are your considerations? So women are way more open than men to work in this space. So that would be one thing. So I love working with a woman team and really enjoy it because they're way more open to that. Okay, that would be what is the demands of the sport? Okay, and what is the culture of the sport? So for example, I divide sport into three mental um, activities. Okay, so sports where you initiate movement. So that would be someone like an AFL that your background, right? So if you're taking a kick for the goal, you're initiating that movement if you've taken a mark. But if you're just in full fly, you're not initiating, you're responding to movement. So that would be the second. So the initiating would be like golf swings. You initiate that movement, right? You're not, there's nothing instinctual about it. Um, you know, darts and, you know, different, um, a golf kicker in rugby, a line out thrower in rugby, all of those are initiate. So the mental demands on them are uh, are quite different from, say, a responsive sport, which is more like a ball in action sport. So your rugby's, footballs, all of that, you're just responding to what in front of you. You're playing one in front of you. So your mental demands are going to be a lot different. Then there's positional mental demands. So the game is informing some of the demands, right? And then the third sport that I would have would be endurance sports, which is your triathlons, marathon. That's a whole other different mental requirements upon the athlete. So this, 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 not specialization, but identification of needs is so critical, right? Because if you think about in the physical realm, we don't go and give a standard program to every one of our athletes. Those programs are informed or dictated by what are the demands of the sport? What are the demands of the role that they play within that team? And what is the best information that they're going to need or what things are going to be critical for them to have in place in order to so that would be, you know, an example where the sport dictates, the gender dictates, the age dictates. So, like we do, we'll do some sessions on professionalism, which are only for the first guys that are year, less than three year pro. I'm not going to look at Sam Kane and say, "Hey, Sam, come to a professionalism." You know, the All Black captain, you know what you're doing. So <laughs> that would be another thing. So does that make sense? Like, there's always those things in place, and that's why I think the skill models the way to go because. If you have a deficit model, then all you're doing is helping sick people get to stability. You're not helping stable people get to performance. Mm -hmm. So your goal is stability in a deficit model. Let's have no people doing dumb stuff. In a skill model, your goal is performance. It's a completely different outcome. Um, so that means you approach it a little bit differently. Yeah. I just want to drill down on one particular skill that you mentioned again in, in your course. And it was just a, a little snippet that I love. And I think we can apply in so many different facets of everything that we do, but the, the, the catchphrase was, I breathe in pressure 
and I breathe out doubt and smile at the opportunity. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Where, where does that come from? And just tell everyone how it's been applied. Yeah, yeah so, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed breathing as a regulator of probably emotion more than anything. So, so we do know, and if, if anyone wants to really, there's lots of breathing stuff out there. I would recommend a hundred times a million, Andrew Huberman, um, he's out of Stanford. His work on breathing, he's a neuroscientist. It's just been phenomenal, right? And so what we, what I wanted to attach breathing to, what I want, what notice is there's a lot of teams, particularly in rugby, the world I walk in, they'll get in their huddle and they start breathing. And our guys did it. And I remember when I arrived, um, when I first started working for the Chiefs, I said, what are you all doing? Oh, we're breathing. Like, why? And no one had an answer. Okay, so so what were we using? Breathing we're using as a, we want to use as a reset and regulation tool, right? And so if you're walking up to a kick or, you know, if you're walking into a really situ- good, situ- uh, difficult situation and th- there's the same thing, I've, another cricketer that, is a black hat cricketer. He uses it every single delivery, and we've worked on it for a couple of years. And it'll be um, it'll be breathing. So so what 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 you're doing is breathing in belief and breathing out doubt, and then you smile at the opportunity to function in pressure because that's a privilege, right? So we're reframing. So what we're doing is is that we know all of us will have doubt in pressure situations. All of us have that. There's no one is, you know. And that's why I think that people don't understand is that though your ability to deal with levels of pressure does increase. So give you an example, as a golfer, um, I can play in, in my club champs and feel <clears throat> relatively comfortable. If I go play in a regional or national event, I don't feel comfortable because things have changed. But my point being is that there is a level, all of us, no matter how long you've been doing it, do feel pressure and we do feel doubt. So what's a tool? to take your focus away from what could go wrong and put your focus into what you could do well. And that's really the narrative of walking towards pressure. So walking towards pressure and pressure being a privilege, pressure can only be viewed as a privilege if you understand that pressure is a place where great things happen as well, not just bad things. So we think about Damien McKenzie, who you're referring to, like his his smiling at pressure when he was kicking goals was about understanding and reminding himself of the privilege that he's got an opportunity to do something special when it's demanded of him. And that's a privilege, right? Rather than something to be burdened by. And so that would be sort of why the reframing of that with the breathing and the smile and that sort of stuff becomes important. You're almost coaching yourself in the moment. Well, since I heard you say that I do coach myself with that in, in the morning. Right. So it's part of my, my morning walk now because, and this is why I think it's handy is <laughs> we talked about before we came on air, the differences between what you would give in performance versus what you would give to, you know, everyday Joe off the street and they are different, but, but that's one that I love that is, is adaptable and, and people feel such emotional weight and doubt at the moment, given what we're all going through and uncertainty, like otherworldly uncertainty, this isn't just, am I going to lose my job? It's like my whole industry might collapse my whole, you know, there's kind of a cataclysmic feel to the world right now where you can still apply the, the language and just the short kind of coaching 
and reframing just in in yep. everyday life. That's massive. Yeah, so I reckon I have probably five or six key phrases that are all attached to a concept that allow people to understand how this. So I'll give you I'll give you an example. So real basic one about we know that you can't win a moment that you're not in, right? But like we want to have our people as present as you possibly can. So we just use a simple phrase that reverberates in our environments: "Be where your feet are." So, so we want our mind and our body to be in the same place. So our mind not drifting into what could happen in the future, or our mind not entangled with what has happened in the past. So that's a another one I would use would be feed the right dog. <laughs> and so what we mean by that, whatever dog you feed barks the loudest. So that's about that's about what you're saying to yourself and your subconscious, right? Because I can talk myself into a bad day but I'm feeding the wrong dog. And if I keep on feeding the dog with negativity, then my subconscious will leap into that conversation and say, keep feeding me, keep feeding me. And because you're focusing on negativity so much, I will deliver on that for you. So your focus is the biggest predictor of what you end up delivering. So if you're focusing on what could go wrong in a situation, you're more likely to deliver that result than you are focusing what could go right. So it's just a simple, what dog are you feeding? It's a really simple Concept. I mean, I think probably the, the third one that's really valuable for everyone is just where a phrase that I just say, stay in your circle. And so what that means is we, we do a circle and inside that circle is everything that you have influence over today. Outside of that circle is everything that you can't, but you want to. <laughs> so if someone starts talking about weather, referees, selection, I'm like, stay in your circle, man. Like, Because if you don't stay in your circle, you're giving energy to things that you can't change and you're neglecting giving energy to the things that you can. So all of a sudden you end up wasting all of your energy. So, so if you think about like James Clear has this brilliant concept, right? He says and the, biggest, the biggest help to deal with anxiety is action, right? So we're mostly anxious about things that we don't have a plan or an action towards. So what I do is if I have anxiety over things that I can't control, then why would I bother putting any investment into that? I want to put investment into things that I can have direct action about. And if I can have direct action into those, so what I can control, I can control my mindset, I can control my attitude, I can control my words. They're all they're all me, right? I can do all of that. I can control what I put in my mouth. I can control whether I exercise. I control whether I'm kind to my my wife and my children. That's all me. But I can't control what's going to happen without COVID. So why am I spending energy in a domain that I have no influence over and neglecting a domain that could change my life? So stay in the circle. That's sort of that concept. We need that one for coaches. I, 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 went, to a, I went to a soccer game recently, professional soccer game, and watched both head coaches just yell furiously at the fourth official for half the game. But I, I guarantee you they're sitting there to their players saying, control your controllables, boys. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. You know, again, yeah. we, we... Don't let your emotions get away from you. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. We've got to live this too. I, I don't know about you, mate, but I've never seen a fourth official overturn a decision, the same as I've never seen a referee overturn a decision. So I, I don't know what we're doing with that one. I've never seen the rain stop because you complained about it either. <laughs> It's just, there's just some things that we're just we can't control. Does the does the rain stop where you're from, mate? Uh, I I think in uh, in Australia B, it, it's just pretty much twenty four seven, isn't it? The rain. Oh, I think I think it's more like in that 
that big West Island just above us that, you know, um, I just think they don't know what good rain is. Oh, you've broken New Zealand in, into the, the two <laughs> islands as well. Yeah. <laughs> you've just created more regionality. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we don't, South Islanders, man, they're a whole different breed. <laughs> um, we've kind of touched on on a little bit, but the the final question that I ask everyone is outside of what you do daily, what have you found recently that has interested you that maybe you didn't expect would interest you? It could be a, it could be a Ted Lasso. It could be a Wikipedia hole. It could be a book that got recommended to you. That's just, you thought was a little bit maybe out there and then you got into it. And you're like, actually now I'm into aliens. Um, actually going back to do formal study, yeah, <laughs> learning how to learn again. Yeah, like I didn't think it would. I would enjoy it, or I suppose I was a little bit. I don't know. Arrogant. The word is that. Like I have good experience. I was like, I don't need this. And, you know, I've I've done it. You know, the school of hard knocks sort of stuff. But actually going through the discipline of the academic side of the work that interests me has been really stimulating, and I think it's, it's going to make me a much better practitioner. And I know that's not always the case with people. Like I, I quite like. I suppose the way that I've gone about it is been in the weeds, highly experienced, and then done the the academic side. And I've really enjoyed that. Like I don't, because if I'd done the academic side without the experience, I don't think I would have been able to know how to apply it. Right. Whereas I think the the academic side now it's just it just complements the practice so well, and it gives me more layers of understanding of why that might be effective or non effective practice. So. You know, I'm 45, gone back to school. I've got a whole bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds in my class. It's quite funny, actually. And then, you know, it's really funny because it's a it's a sport um, exercise science program. <laughs> and so they, they're quite, they're like, oh, what do you do? Like, oh, just coach. <laughs> they're like, oh, what's, oh, yeah, just coach, just coach some, some things. So. <laughs> you know, and then they whisper and get about and they'll come and ask, oh, can you tell me about this? So um, it's been a really, really enjoyable experience as far as um, I'm learning. I'm learning about the disciplines, other disciplines of performance that will actually complement the work that I'm doing. And that's why I'd say for head coaches, you don't have to do a psychology degree. But I know like, some of the, like a lot of the webinars I've done, it's been a lot of head coaches who can't afford in their environment or their teams or their clubs don't have money for someone like myself, right, to come in as a and provide some expertise or provide some assistance. So how do we upskill them? And what knowledge do they need to have? They might need to know three or four things that are going to be really important in helping coach their players a bit more effectively. And you know, if I'm a head coach, I would one of the first things I'll be doing in 2022 would be signing up to learn more about psychology and high performance if they haven't already, because that at the end of the day will so enhance your coaching ability. If you understand the dynamics that are in play within the minds of the athletes you're trying to coach. Um, It doesn't have to be deep, but it does have to be there. I couldn't imagine coaching without knowing some of the psychological framework. It just makes coaching so much more understandable from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And just a final thought on that. I mean, this is what we do. This, this is why I kind of, it, it, it does baffle me a little bit that 
it's gotten so far away from us. This has been our role and, and not that long ago. And there was a, I watched the, the Alex Ferguson documentary and the one thing that stood out is he said, psychology is someone else's word. I just call it management. And it was this just really sharp, this has always been our job, has been psychology, you know, in team sports. And so it, it has drifted away from us. And I agree with you. We don't need to have PhDs in this. But as a group, we need to come back to kind of the heart of what coaching is and has always been because it, it has drifted away from us a little bit. And, and that's, you're right. And that's where like Owen, Owen Eastwood, who's a good mutual friend of ours, like we've talked at length for many hours over the last number of years around if you don't understand group dynamics and you don't understand the effect of the environment on people's mindsets, that, that's psychological conversation culture is a psychological conversation which is in some sense if you want to go to the the real depth of it and the scientific approach is how do we activate the right hormones at the right time for people to feel like they belong well you don't have to know all that what those hormones are but what you have to know is that your leadership of the environment will have tremendous influence at a biological and psychological level for people in the room but you just have to understand that. And therefore, your messaging and how you communicate and the consistency of that. And then what sort of standards and expectations you have in place and do they reflect what's what do you live them, you know, like we've talked about earlier. So I think that stuff, I, I don't know, I think that's one-on-one, 101 of coaching is, uh, you know, and I'm doing a little bit of work for a team and they're probably 99.9% have their coaches have been in just tactical. Yeah. They've never had exposure to this, but we all talk about it. What's the most important part of our teams? Yeah. There's still that gap, isn't there, between what we say and what we commit time and energy and focus to. to. And I'm not, I'm not belittling any head coaches. Like if the surveys taught me one thing, it's not that they don't want to, it's just that they don't know. They don't know how. It's not that they don't want to. Everyone's got an appetite for this, right? But how do we do it? And how do we do it in the unique context that I have with not a huge amount of budget? But there's ways to, to move forward in this without just dismissing that whole massive area of performance and saying it's too hard and we don't know what to do, so we'll just leave it alone. That, that, that's the great part of, of all of this conversation, all of the conversation around physiology. And like, there's this... Snippet again, Dave Roberts, when he's on with Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr, and he says, you know what? We've always had analytics. They were just always in our heads. And it was, it was this really telling, again, it was kind of that Ferguson-esque moment for me where I'm like, yeah, this has always been part of what we do. So, yes, we can visualize it. We can manipulate it faster now. But baseball players have always known who, who throws hard and inside um, and I'm going to have to pull this guy. I'm going to have to, you know, figure something out. Like, it's just been inside their heads. And so this is what I mean is like, we're not too far away from any of these performance elements, but you know, that you don't also, you also don't need to have Dodger budgets or Manchester United budgets to be effective in them. That's the great news. No, I think as simple as what you're doing. Like, I think what you're doing is, is just an analogy simple analogy it's a starving baker right so 
you know, if you're a head coach, that's your biggest danger is being a starving baker, meaning, you know, a baker opens up a store in town. He works 24-7 bread for everyone else, but he doesn't eat and he dies of starvation at the bakery. How ironic. But I think that's a lot of head coaches. Like, they're not feeding themselves. So how can they feed everyone else? And if they keep feeding everyone else without feeding themselves, one day they're going to fall over. And we can call that burnout or whatever. It's Or the industry has spat me out or I've had enough. My question would be for those coaches, what are you feeding yourself so you don't become a starving baker? Because I know so many head coaches today are starving bakers. They're feeding everyone else. They're around food the whole time and they're not eating. And then, you know, the irony is scary. Mate, for the people that want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? You're apparently the, the, the most the most improved most improved on LinkedIn, according to Rusty. Where, uh, so where is that award? I, I, I told. Yeah, I went. I went from in, <laughs> in, the, in oh, the office. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Nah, it's not. It's not. Most improves are relative. That means you were horrible, and you you became reasonable. Yeah. One to a two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I went from a one to a two. Yeah, well, I went from <laughs> one to two. I doubled my productivity. So. No, I found yeah. LinkedIn. LinkedIn for me has been a good place because um, I'm not a social media guy. Like I like it to keep up with friends and families and what everyone's up to, but I don't. I don't post a lot. Facebook I have for my parents and grandparents and all the people. So I wanted to find a forum where I could share ideas and engage with people. And I think LinkedIn's. I don't know what you feel. It's actually quite a. It surprised me how good of a platform it is. Yeah. It is good. I think people see it as like, oh, just a bunch of business guys, you know, like shaking each other's hands and trying to get jobs. But I reckon 90% of it is coaches and high performance and, you know, sports scientists. I reckon I've learned so much from LinkedIn. And honestly, the relationships have been so rich. Like there's people you talk to, you know, in a week and you go, I never, ever would have dreamed I'd have a conversation with them because how on earth would you get to know each other? And so the great benefit of something like LinkedIn to me is the relational, like me and you have connected through that. Like I've picked up something you wrote and went, hey, I read your book, man. I really enjoyed it. I wish people were doing more in the head coach space. As you go, hey, that's cool. Let's set up a call. You know, hey, I'm going to do your course. Now we're doing this. Like it just is this natural, organic, now we're mates and we'll support each other. And that, that wouldn't have happened without something like LinkedIn. So I feel like LinkedIn has a bit more of an authenticity and depth to it as far as your work. Like you can, you know, you can make a good influence, but you've got to put up quality work and you can engage with a whole bunch of people you normally wouldn't have. So that's been, that's where you can find me probably the most. Yeah. And that's what I enjoy. I enjoy that world. Yeah. And kudos yeah. to you for showing your work as well. Um, that That's what I love the most about your <laughs> improvement on LinkedIn um, is giving it away and, and proving, you know, again, it makes you sharpen your apps, which I, I love, um, you know, practitioners that are showing their work. So, yeah, jump on LinkedIn, connect with Walshie. Right. So it makes you work harder. <laughs> That's it. Um, mate, probably long overdue for us to do this, but thanks for coming on. And, yeah, I'm sure a bunch of people will be in touch with you. Hey, thanks for listening all the way to the end. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head to codyroyal.com or find me on Twitter at Cody Royal. See you next time.